Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Armand Cohen, the executive director of the Clean Air Task Force. The Clean Air Task Force has been rated as one of, if not the, most cost-effective climate change charities in the world, including by organizations such as Founders Pledge, SoGive, and Giving Green. To give a sense of what that actually means in practice, Founders Pledge has estimates that for every $1,000 that the Clean Air Task Force spends, it can avert around 100 tonnes of CO2, which is roughly the same as about 200 people switching over to a plant-based diet. Founders Pledge also estimates that the Clean Air Task Force can avert a death that is directly related to air pollution for just under $6,000, which if you're into charity evaluation at all, you'll appreciate that these numbers are just phenomenally good. So how do Armand and his team do this? Well, the Clean Air Task Force is more technology-oriented than most other NGOs working in this space. And they are especially good at spotting technologies that are currently being neglected by mainstream discussions, but which might have a huge impact on our ability to fight climate change. Plus, the Clean Air Task Force is also unusually good at getting this cutting edge of research transformed into actual US policy. So in our episode, we talk to Armand about some of the past successes the Clean Air Task Force has had in its 25-year history, including their work on super pollutants, carbon capture storage, and shutting down coal plants. We also hear about the Clean Air Task Force's upcoming plans to expand their work into new areas and countries, as well as some general advice from Armand, who has been working on energy and environmental policy for three decades now. I felt like I learned an absolute ton talking to Armand, both in terms of what technical solution environmentalists should be supporting and how we should be approaching the politics to try and achieve this. Without further ado, here's the episode. So I'm Armand Cohen. I'm executive director of the Clean Air Task Force, which is a non-governmental environmental research and advocacy organization. And uh, I spend most of my time managing a 55-person knowledge-based organization. Um, and uh, kind of keeping all the pots boiling, so to speak. Sometimes I impersonate a subject matter expert on some issues as well, as we'll get into today. But uh, I uh, started my career as a lawyer advocate and then uh, uh, founded this organization about 25 years ago to focus much more uh, directly and, and uh, singularly on the energy system. Awesome. That's really interesting to hear. And it's going to be super exciting delving into all of this different work that uh, you and your organization are doing. But maybe to ask a bit about uh, your own kind of journey here, how was it that you came to be interested about climate change, or as you mentioned, uh, energy systems uh, more specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, I really started my work in the environment actually back as a, you know, uh, high school student um, concerned about really what were then the more visible forms of pollution, like uh, water pollution, air pollution. And, you know, the problems were, were different then. Um, this was, I'm ancient, so this was like the 1970s. Uh, and the uh, Lake Erie in the United States was burning uh, because of petroleum uh, on the surface and chemicals on the surface. Um, the air was filthy in most major U.S. cities. Uh, raw sewage was being dumped uh, into uh, uh, lakes and oceans. Um it was a very different set of issues and the early wave of legislation that I kind of worked on as a high school student, you know, got passed in the seventies and, you know, the air got a lot cleaner and, and certainly the water got a good deal cleaner. Um, so that's how I got into these things. Um, I, I got interested in energy 
actually um, sometime in my law school years, um, just took a course on it, found it fascinating. Um, and actually, in some ways, that's now uh, almost 40 years ago, many of the same themes, climate change wasn't on the radar then, but the notion of quote unquote, sustainable energy had already come into the picture. And so I, I, I first got interested more, frankly, it was more of an intellectual uh, interest. And then in my first job, uh, real job, uh, after f- finished my law training, was working for a, an environmental organization in New England, in the Northeast US. And uh, at the time, and you'll find this amusing in, in light of our subsequent conversation, uh, my first job was to stop a nuclear power plant from being sighted <laughs> um, in uh, New Hampshire, uh, nearby Massachusetts, where I live. And uh, that uh, at the time, climate change was not on the radar. Uh, it was thought that, um, you know, between biofuels and maybe uh, some kind and a lot of energy efficiency uh, and wind and solar, we could uh, we could avoid all the air pollution issues. And I, I believe that at the time, uh, nuclear didn't seem necessary. And uh, so by doing those cases, uh, I learned a lot very quickly. That was my graduate degree in, uh, in energy uh, planning and energy economics. And uh, I just haven't stopped it since. And uh, I think as the, um, if you think about the chronology, so climate really, although it's been studied, you know, for a century or more, uh, going back to Arrhenius and and uh, and other folks who had kind of come up with the original insights, you know, essentially uh, the, it didn't become a, a real public issue. I would say until the mid 1980s and even the late 1980s, we can argue. And at that point, uh, I was doing a lot of work on conventional air pollution, energy efficiency, uh, and that was my major focus. The early part of my career, which you'll also find amusing in light of what I'm going to say later on this podcast about the potential for energy efficiency, which I think is, uh, it, there's something there, but it's, it's not the cure-all. In any case, uh, as climate came into the picture, my work began to focus much more on what could we actually do to avoid CO2 emissions. And since 75% of the CO2 on the planet is coming from the energy system, that sort of was a natural crossover. And that's kind of where, where, where I began my climate focus. Um, I was led to found this organization 25 years ago uh, because uh, it was really clear by the mid-1990s that climate might be the overarching challenge, uh, from a, certainly from an atmospheric standpoint. And uh, so we decided to dedicate the organization just to focusing on the energy system and, uh, and climate interactions. And I think we were probably the first non-governmental organization, environmental organization, in the world that had that exclusive focus. How did and how do you think about how the Clean Air Task Force fits into the broader environmental movement? And in particular, you've used this phrase crowding in, as in crowding in support. Can you say what that means? Well, let me just say, frankly, we're, we're uh, I, sometimes I say we are wonks and plumbers. Um, that is to say, um, we... I, I think we, we do campaigns. We do pub, we, we don't directly do campaigns, but we work with campaigners and we start campaigns. So there's a public facing communications component to what we do for sure. But there are many, many other organizations that do that and have the capability and have very large networks um, to be able to pull off that kind of um, that kind of work. Our focus is really on uh, relatively technical issues 
and pragmatic solution pathways. Um, so we do a lot of work trying to understand technology at a fairly deep level, interacting with the private sector, uh, the technology developers, the scientists and technologists who are working on advanced technology. And uh, we think fairly deeply about the markets, how they can enter those markets, and then what the policy supports are. So, you know, a lot of other organizations rely on us for technical analysis that they don't necessarily have the capability to do. And, and by technical, I mean both, you know, physical, chemical, biological, you know, sciencey stuff, uh, but also uh, economics. And then finally, when it comes down to writing a bill or crafting a policy, there's a lot of mechanics around that, like what's actually going to work um, in terms of a government program and how do you not waste money on stuff? Um, we, we have a fair amount of knowledge about that and how to make sure that legislation regulations are written in a way that, that actually gets the job done. So our role in the environmental movement um, is, you know, very much, well, twofold. One is that this technical uh, piece uh, and the um, sort of, you know, I, I call it plumbing, actually making things, translating high level policy objectives into actionable um, activities by the private and public sector. The other part, frankly, is that we have a somewhat different view of the climate situation than a lot of NGOs, as we'll get into later. We take a very technology agnostic approach. You know, we support almost anything that's zero carbon, at least uh, exploring it. Um, there may be some dead ends, but we think that having op multiple options to solve climate change is an absolutely critical strategy. That is not the view of a lot of environmental organizations, as we'll probably discuss later. So, and we've tried, you know, we respect our colleagues and their viewpoints, but we, we just, we disagree on some points. So in that sense, I would say, in addition to being technically oriented, uh, I would say we offer a somewhat different perspective um, that is, uh, uh, you know, trying to push some of our colleagues on some of these issues, but, uh, but there's room for all voices and, um, uh, in that, in that sense, I think there's a, there's a good ecosystem out there. Um, in terms of crowding in, um, you know, I think our, our view is that we're trying to bring more, um, voices, uh, to the table for climate uh, action. So one of our strategies since our founding, we sue all the time. We use the courts. We, we were adversaries to fossil fuel corporations. Um, I've had many, many, fossil fuel executives scream at me in their boardrooms. Um, at the same time, we talk to them and uh, we, we try and understand what their uh, sort of technical capabilities are and, and actually how we can work with them. And a good example of that is you're beginning to see a number of the large fossil fuel companies. I mean, Shell, BP, Total, uh, ENEL would be examples. Are, you know, Equinor uh, in Norway are beginning to sort of turn around on this issue and to get sort of the major uh, oil companies and gas companies starting to think about climate strategies. I, I call that crowding in. That is to say, um, bringing in, uh, bringing in more um, perspectives to the, to, to the table. And also these people have a lot of money and influence. So if they're, if they're going to uh, turn a bit um, uh, you know, that's that, that adds, uh, that adds momentum to the whole, the whole movement. And I, and frankly, I've been surprised at how quickly that shift has occurred. It seems like in the last year, it's, it's just gone into, to hyperspeed. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what I mean by crowding in. It's, it's, it's really turning in, uh, climate change from an identity movement 
um, and maybe a cultural signifier into a practical plan of action. And I think we've just crossed that threshold um, in the last, honestly, it's in my 30 year career, I've never seen uh, such a rapid change in the uh, approach of politicians, the general public and, um, and, and the, the industrial corporations. We recently spoke to the Good Food Institute and I'm hearing really close parallels where they are also in this mode of shifting the kind of animal advocacy movement from a kind of just a signifier of some allegiance to a practical project. And they are also speaking to executives in the major meat companies and making this case that moving in the direction of protein alternatives could be in their interests. And they've also said something very similar to what, to what you said, which is that they're picking up on a kind of change in attitude from politicians and industry and also just the public in the last maybe half decade or so. So it's kind of exciting to hear these, these parallels. And I, just a comment, you know, I was, a, I, as, an, as an undergraduate, I studied intellectual history and there's a very famous um, article about generations and the influence of generations on social change. Uh, I think it was Carl Mannheim who wrote about this maybe 50, 70 years ago. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of what's going on is generational. So I'm 63 years old. I was in junior high school uh, during the first Earth Day. And all I'm the same age as the people running all these industrial corporations. So um, there is a, there's a way in which uh, they've grown up in an entirely different environment. Um, now, they may have gone through, you know, MBA training or something like that, or become engineers or whatever, but there's still that there, you know, around 1970, there was just kind of a, at least in the developed world, there was a a kind of a paradigm shift around environment. And, uh, I think you can explain a lot of that early in my career. I was really dealing with people in control who, you know, they came up, they were post mostly, uh, the so-called greatest generation, you know, people who had lived through world war two or grown up right after world war two. And, you know, environment was a bit of a luxury as the world was attempting to, to grow economically. And I think there's, you know, this kind of post-industrial kind of acceptance that environment is an important thing is, is really shaped, I think. Um, so I just biographically, when I look at the people I deal with, um, you know, even the people I deal with in the fossil fuel corporations, if they've had environmental, you know, management training somewhere along the way, because and that, and that field didn't even exist 40 years ago. So it's it's an interesting, it's fascinating because what we're talking about is as much social change as technical change. In fact, I could argue it's much more about social change than technical change. It's really amazing to see, I guess you've touched on two different points here. On the one hand, how much um, the environmental movement itself has changed and the things that they've cared about. And on the other hand, the landscape that it's kind of working in as well has changed a tremendous amount. And I'm sure most of our conversation will be spent about what the challenges are today and what we should really be focusing on. But before we do that, I'd really love to hone in on maybe some of the early days as well um, of the Clean Air Task Force. I believe you're celebrating 25 years now, which is a tremendous achievement of being involved in this space. But yeah, I would just like to really hear about what it was like at the very beginning and what you were kind of focusing on. I guess from the name as well, um, there was a lot of attention on maybe some non-CO2 polluting gases there. Right. So um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, we do all this work on climate and people say, well, why are you called the Clean Air Task Force? Why aren't you called the Climate Task Force? And actually, that was a deliberate choice on our part. Um, you know, back when we started in the mid-90s, climate didn't have necessarily the kind of traction 
that it does today as a public issue uh, and broad public support. Um, our theory was that um, fossil fuel um, carbon emitting sources both emitted CO2 and a bunch of other things um, that had more immediate health effects and environmental effects that people could observe. One of the devilish problems with climate change is that you know climate is something that happens over decades and centuries, not over days and weeks uh, and months. Um, and although that pace of change may be accelerating a bit, but it's it's largely invisible. I mean, we have disasters, you know, every now and then, and people say, "Oh yeah, that was probably made worse by climate change," and then they move on. Um, the thing about uh, smog or soot. Um, or uh, acidification in forests or lakes is that people can experience that um, and and they experience it in their lungs and bad air days and they can you know see the effects on forests and so forth. So we chose to focus on the most visible impacts of unabated fossil fuel use. Um, and our singular focus at that time when we started 25 years ago, was on uh, the um, the contribution of coal plants um, specifically to those problems, and by doing that, we we ended up um, really targeting a major source of CO two, and that was not an accident. Um, our our theory of change was that if we could pinch down on the emissions uh, of all these conventional pollutants, so called conventional pollutants that damage health and, and the environment, uh, and uh, in the process you know, effectively force uh, more costs on coal generation um, that combined with, at the time, we thought, um, you know, gas, natural gas replacement would get us a long way um, towards our climate goals. Now, at the time, we didn't understand that what you really have to do is get to zero. And so substituting gas for coal is, um, is at best a transitional strategy, and some would argue not even that. Um, for various reasons. But that was the theory of change, was uh, make it more expensive to operate unabated fossil uh, power plants, which were responsible for something like, you know, 70% of the um, of the total CO2 burden from energy system. Uh, and, and eventually they would retire, um, especially if cheap gas became available, which lo and behold, it did, not due to our doing, but um, uh, due to, to uh, fracking, one of the many ironies of, of the... Um, of, of the last couple decades. Uh, so that was the theory. We managed to get uh, U.S. policy aligned around very, very stringent uh, controls of emissions from coal-fired power plants. Uh, natural gas helped um, by coming down in price. And now as a result, uh, you know, most of the U.S. coal power plant fleet will be retired by the mid-1930s, uh, by the 2030s. Um, mid, mid-2030s for sure. Probably most of it will be gone by the end of this decade. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with just the emission controls from uh, nit- nitrogen, sulfur, uh, smog, soot, uh, and, and air toxics. But um, increasingly, they also understand that uh, CO2 is part of the picture. Now, you know, ironically, we, we never hit our CO2 agenda. And the whole point of going after the conventional pollutants was to say, well, you've got all these immediate problems. And oh, by the way, CO2 is an emerging issue that you have to worry about. Why don't you just get out of coal now or as soon as you can and start on something else? Because you can you know, put a scrubber on um, and maybe get away for another decade, but maybe switching entirely to a different fuel or renewables um, would be a better option. 
And um, as a result, you know, we, we had proposed that a so-called four pollutant strategy, which uh, again, the, the ironies and the, the, the contingencies of politics are fascinating. Uh, in the late 1990s, we actually had the U.S. power companies agreeing to CO2 limits on their power plants, along with all these other limits. And uh, there was a brief pause with the election of George W. Bush. Uh, and the utilities were actually still on board, but um, just this is the great man theory of history. So Dick Cheney uh, basically contradicted or instructed uh, his uh, his president, uh, George W. Bush, that there was no way that the Republicans should agree to carbon limits. Uh, and that was the end of that. So you know, frankly, that that one event is, is fascinating. That one person really delayed progress for essentially 30 years. Um, we have the utilities back at the table now. We have a favorable U.S. administration. Um, so now we're we're sort of back to where we started in some ways, although we've certainly got a lot more of the industry on board and the public on board. Um, but anyway, that that was the whole theory. We started out focusing on visible local pollution sources. Um, Sometimes I like to say that we won the air pollution fight the day that um, S- Senator Voinovich, who's passed away, uh, of Ohio, which was kind of the epicenter of coal-fired power in the United States, saw that a uh, study that we had uh, commissioned um, appeared in the Columbus, Ohio dispatch. And the headline was, 3,000 Ohioans de- die every year from coal-fired power plant air pollution. And at that point, you know, he, he, he told us, he said, at that, at that moment, I knew things had to change because it was no longer an abstract issue. It was something that was his constituents were going to care about. So this focus, the early focus was much more on local campaigning around specific power plants and around specific visible environmental damages. Um, now, climate CO2 is a much more abstract issue and it's it's harder to, to work on. So we, we've now shifted, you know, strategies to maybe work more on the technology side. I'll just flag as well to any listener listening to this uh, who might want to have a look there that the Clean Air Task Force has got a great infographic as well about all the coal power plants uh, on their website, where you can also see exactly the kind of estimated deaths that are caused by it. And just looking at that infographic and really being able to see each location and being able to see your own community and the effects there is is a really powerful thing. I can definitely understand why those sorts of uh, messages um, help uh, change senators and, and the way that they're thinking about these things. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote, and, and this, this speaks to the power of information. Um, when we started the task force in, in the mid-90s, uh, there was some polling uh, that suggested that most Americans thought that most of their electric power came from hydroelectric plants, when in fact, something like, you know, six or 7% come from hydro. And, you know, so there was this sense of uh, that just coal was invisible in an odd way. It was just an invisible issue. And so the first thing that we set out to do was to really make sure people understood where their power was coming from. And at that time in the mid 1990s, you know, well over half, as much as 60% was coming from coal. So um, that's, you know, that by just giving people information and understanding um, the sources, I think we sort of pioneered some of those techniques. And, you know, now of course, everyone in the world can go on a website anywhere of any of the major environmental organizations that work on this issue and see some kind of, you know, coal. We, we pioneered coal mapping and we were happy to have that, that, that picked up as, a, as, a, as an approach um, because at the end of the day, it is machines that are creating the pollution. And there are about 10,000 of them on the planet. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what we have to deal with. It actually, in a, in a way, it's a finite problem. 
I mean, it's a big problem, but it's finite and it's understandable. Um, and that's, that's kind of the approach we took is like, let's, let's name the sources, let's make it tangible, let's make the impacts tangible, um, and let's put forward solutions. I have this impression that the Clean Air Task Force has been kind of consistently good at spotting, you know, new or underrated or uh, emerging issues in climate. We were talking about non-CO2 polluting gases. I also have in mind um, super pollutants. I want to ask about how that is. I mean, is there something about your way of thinking as an organization or just your way of operating that means you're able to be so early on these things so uh, consistently? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just going to sound a little bit self-aggrandizing on our part, but um, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll brag today. Um, you know, I think, um, let's put it this way, my co-founder is a guy named Joe Chasen, and Joe's uh, Joe came to this field from military intelligence. Um, so, you know, he's a pretty deep strategic thinker, and uh, we assembled a staff that was highly technical um, and really, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, physicists, biologists, uh, chemists, uh, mechanical engineers, um, economists, electrical engineers in our orbit, not all on staff. But I think it's the level of um, understanding of the mechanics of both the climate system and the atmosphere, coupled with a pretty deep understanding of energy systems that leads us to kind of have the skill set to kind of think about these problems in a different way. And then there's just plain intellectual curiosity. And uh, just, you know, a lot of the, when I hire people, a lot of what I look for is just, uh, you know, are you interested in solving problems? And are you interested in challenging your own BS um, and rethinking things, which we've done a number of times? Um, you know, nuclear power would be a good example of that. So I, I think it's a little bit of de organizational DNA. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not saying we're the only folks who, who have that, but we, we tend to, you know, one of our, um, uh, one of our advocates says, you know, we should, uh, we should take positions, but hold them lightly and be available and open to uh, contrary evidence. And I just think there's a little bit of that. I, I wish there was more of that, not only in the environmental movement, but also obviously in the, in the world at large, um, you know, things have become quite polarized and ideological. So I'd say that that's, you know, so, uh, for example, on the methane issue, uh, a good example is, um, methane as a climate change pollutant was really off the radar. Uh, and, um, you know, scientists understood it at some level, but, uh, but, uh, Jim Hansen, um, who's a famous climate scientist published a paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2000. And, he just basically extracted information from some existing studies and said, you know, methane uh, and black carbon may be warming right now at least half as much as carbon dioxide is. And moreover, it is something that if you control it, you get a very rapid cooling effect. So why aren't we working on that? I mean, that's it was a scientific paper, so it wasn't really advocating policy, but we immediately saw the implications of that. And it was our science director who saw that and said, wow, you know, this is something we haven't thought about. No one's talking about this. And uh, so we jumped right on that. And, you know, we actually just went down and met with Jim at Columbia University and just pumped him for hours about everything he knew about this and uh, started pushing this idea. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we're a bit of a think tank as well as an advocacy organization. And I think it's that think tank part that accounts for the innovation. 
I sometimes I say we're a knowledge based organization with an advocacy arm rather than a than an advocacy organization with a with a, a think tank attached to it. You know, it's you can argue it either way, but it's it's a much different approach. Um, which is, you know, you try and get grounded in the facts first and, and figure out what the story is, um, you know, before you form your position. And then, you know, as the facts change, you got to change your position. So maybe one thing that would be really interesting to hear about from you now is where you see the current debate at and what kind of solutions you see. So maybe if I can like provoke a little bit, um, if you're looking at kind of the, the debate now, what is maybe the most common misconception that you see when people think about what the solutions to climate change should be? Yeah, well, there, there, there are actually a lot of misconceptions, but I, I, I think probably the top one is the idea that we can somehow conserve our way out of this problem. Uh, by using less energy. I think that is probably the number one fallacy. Um, it is not that conservation or energy efficiency, if you want to call it that, is not a portion of the solution, but, uh, and, and there's no question that a lot of efficiency improvement um, could be made, particularly in the, um, in the developed world where we've improved efficiency, but not as rapidly as we might. But the, oh, the overwhelming fact is that um, the U.S. and Europe represent together something like 30, 35% of world energy consumption. Um, maybe that's a little bit higher, but um, in any case, the developing world is is really, the poorer world is really the, is going to determine the climate future and is going to determine the future of energy. And uh, right now, the average um, African consumes something like 5% per capita the amount of energy that someone in the rich world and the OECD does. Um, and of course, North America is higher than Europe, but on average, that's about right. You know, these are energy starved parts of the world. Um, you know, there's still 600 million people without any access to reliable electricity and another several billion that have access, but only sporadic and at very low levels. Um, so their modernity is going to require, you know, and, and humanity um, just simple decency is going to require that, that those folks get a lot more access to modern energy levels. Um, and when you look at those numbers, you say, yeah, we can reduce, we could cut energy use in half in the OECD, but it's going to be swamped um, by the, the next uh, growth in the next century. Just to give you one little factoid. So, you know, Europe, and just look at the last decade, Europe reduced energy demand by something like uh, four or 6%. Uh, depending on how you count, but the developing world increased their energy use by 600 percent. You know that's kind of what, and, and you know a lot of that was China uh, coming on stream, but also Vietnam, Indonesia, um, you know much of Asia. You know it's it's a numbers game at the end of the day, and the uh, a lot of energy or effort can go into energy efficiency. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some there, but but uh, I think there is a, a sense that somehow. You know, we're just using too much, and if we just all cut back, you know, we could we could really make a dent in this problem. And I would argue that what you're doing, you may you may uh, flatten the curve somewhat, but the curve is still going to be extremely steep. Um, so the question is, how do you basically double the energy supply on the planet and make it zero carbon at the same time? And eighty percent of that energy right now is coming from untreated fossil fuels. So that's the biggest. I think that's the biggest fallacy. There are a bunch of others, but um, we can get into later. But uh, that that I think is the most dangerous one in some ways because it, it understates the size of the problem and tends to make people think somewhat less radically about the solution. I definitely want to follow up on that. 
um, a little bit and maybe ask where do you think this misconception comes from? Because one thing that definitely strikes me when I think of myself as just an individual or a consumer or just somebody uh, you know, living in a in a Western country is it's a lot easier for me to try and change my own consumer habits, maybe buying local or not using plastic bags and the like. But when I think of this, as you said, much bigger problem, there's very little that I as an individual can do, you know, in getting whole countries to change their energy system and the like. Um, yeah, so I guess my, my question is one, where do you see this misconception coming from? And then maybe also as a second follow-up question is, if we do see this as our diagnosis, then how can individuals kind of buy into this message and, and support these solutions to these, these much larger problems, as you said? Yeah, I mean, as far as where the, you know, the misconception comes from, look, I think it's very well intentioned. And I think I'm not downgrading or attempting to criticize people who try and look at their own lifestyles or fly less or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's actually good on a number of levels may not have a huge dent on the, the, on the, uh, on the, on the problem globally, but it does make you conscious of the issue. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I think where it gets dangerous is when you, uh, when you mistake that for, for a large scale solution. So I, I think part of it just comes from the sort of general, you know, this, this is very complicated and, you know, a lot of environmental historians have written about it. Um, I think it comes, you know, from a certain change in Western attitudes generally about consumption um, which you begin to see emerging in the 1970s and, you know, and on, but that's kind of history. And in the second part of your question, look, I sometimes say the most important individual action you can take is to vote for people who are going to take action on this problem. I mean, far and away, I mean, these are big systems. As I said, there are 10,000 power plants on the planet. Um, that's a finite number of things. There are policies and actions that can be taken to re either replace them or clean them up and get to zero emissions. Um, there's technology to do that. Some of it's more mature than others. You need to elect politicians uh, who are going to demand, who are going to make that kind of action happen and, and demand it of corporations and so forth that they, that they move in that direction. So by far your biggest impact is as a citizen, as opposed to as an individual consumer, again, not to denigrate your individual actions, but, uh, you do have to look at the whole and there are leverage points uh, in this technological system that uh, if you can get the right direction of travel, you know, is just going to provide so much more leverage than all of us trying to conserve. You know, sometimes I offer people the um, thought experiment, which is let's say that energy had no you know, impact on air, water or land. Would you care? Shouldn't we all just use as much energy as possible? And people kind of get stumped by that one because it's sort of, you know, there, there certainly are religious and other um, beliefs that would suggest that, you know, just too much of anything is not a good thing, almost on principle. Um, but it is an interesting thought experiment to run you through. I, I'm convinced we can get to an energy system, you know, maybe not by 2050, but, but well before the end of the century that essentially has, you know, a negligible impact on the planet. And if that's the case, I say, why shouldn't people have access uh, everywhere to the internet, to uh, warmth, um, to mobility? You know, I mean, we can argue about aesthetics and, and, and that sort of thing about whether we really want to be running around in cars um, in, in 2070. But I, I think the whole trick here with climate, and this is a struggle, is to move out of a purely moralistic, almost puritanical framework of thinking about we've got to just use use less, use less, use less, 
and energy is somehow itself a problem to actually energy is an enabler of a lot of really good things. It's responsible for a lot of modernity as we understand it. And there are some people who don't like modernity. So then you get into that argument. But assuming that putting that argument aside, um, I would say that um, the key here for most people who are thinking about this pragmatically is how do we move specific technologies and market structures and policies into place um, that would basically have a zero impact on the planet. And, you know, I think we've seen in so many other areas, uh, really good trends um, and energy is energy's moving in that direction. It's just not fast enough. Yeah. So you made this point that there is a group of people who get maybe unhelpfully hung up on this idea that um, energy efficiency and cutting back energy use just is the silver bullet. It is the, or the central solution um, when it comes to climate change. And it made me think, I watched a talk of yours yesterday where you brought up um, this Isaiah Berlin essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox. You know, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, obviously, that wasn't about climate, but can you say something about what it means to be a fox uh, in this sense when you're approaching questions about climate solutions? Right. Well, I, I mean, the, the, the Berlin essay actually had nothing to do with energy, which is, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> I mean, it really had to do comparing uh, two Russian writers and their different attitudes to the world. But, but it's it really what he was talking about was granularity versus generality. And I think his point in the essay was that there is a way of looking at the world in which you have a single organizing idea and everything else, all your actions revolve around that. And then there is a different way of looking at it, which is that the, um, of the world, which is that there's very complex systems, uh, multiple vectors, social, economic, political, technological, that align to create, you know, where we are today, the mess that we're in today. And you have to kind of think about each of those pieces. So in the energy context, the single big organizing idea, or maybe the two or three big kind of, I'll call them the, the hedgehog ideas would be use less, electrify everything, and wind and solar can solve, we have enough wind and solar on the planet to solve everything. And those are kind of the three big organizing ideas that, you know, I, again, with all due respect to my colleagues um, in the movement, I, I think that's a fairly dominant kind of hedgehoggy view of the world. I think, um, you know, as, as we'll get into, and in, I guess in a little bit more discussion later, the a, a Fox approach would be to say, well, let's see, let's look at each of those pieces. We just talked a little bit about energy efficiency and the the problem of, of um, absolute demand swamping efficiency. Um, we can think about the issue around electrifying everything. Well, you know, that's that may work in some circumstances, but there may be whole sectors of the economy uh, where liquid or gaseous fuels may actually be necessary. Now, we might be wrong, but we've got to be open to the possibility that to actually create cement and steel to uh, power long distance freight or marine shipping, we're going to need uh, some kind of power dense fuel or to balance the grid by breaking that problem down into sectors, it gets more complex all of a sudden. And then, and then the last bit on renewables, um, is, and by the way, I spent a lot of my career pushing wind and solar still do think it's a great part of the solution. 
but to sort of leap to the conclusion that that sort of wind and solar combination, maybe with some lithium ion batteries, will solve all of the, the electric grid problems, uh, you know, is, is another one of those hedgehog ideas. It's very sticky in the public discourse because it's very simple. It's very clear. It's very attractive. And it might be right, but it might not be. And I think that the Fox way of thinking is, you know, really hedging, uh, and sorry for the pun there, I guess hedging and hedging <laughs> go together more, but, but, you know, hedging your bets and taking a probabilistic view and, and multiplying your options rather than, than restricting them is more of a Fox way of thinking. And I think that's kind of what Berlin actually, not just in that essay, but in his whole career kind of spent his life arguing against what I would call intellectual monoculture you know, in which there's just simply one, one overarching idea. And um, you know, I think his point was that, uh, you know, it's kind of out of fashion these days, because you might call him an old fashioned liberal, but in a way, he was just saying, Let, let's be open to the fact that there are just multiple perceptions of reality and what the good is, and that if we're going to survive on the planet, uh, we really have to come to some accommodation and find ways in which we everyone can see themselves in the solution set. Uh, rather than trying to exterminate the other side or beat them into submission. And and, I, and I'm afraid that's just too much of the rhetoric out there right now on climate, not to mention everything else uh, that we see in the world, uh, is is based on a kind of Manichaean, you know, black and white view of, of things. So that's that's kind of the approach we take. And I, I you know, again, I not to be critical of any of my colleagues, I, you know, I have to say earlier in my career, I sort of to take this good and evil approach uh, to things. But um, uh, maybe it's just, you know, my advanced age that leads me to a a somewhat more nuanced view. This seems to maybe link to something you were mentioning before, which is this idea that too much of a single thing um, will just have, you know, there's an instinctive reason why we think that there might be problems with that. And one way you could think about this is that if you just scale anything to like a certain scale, you will start having unintended consequences that you can't even foresee. Yeah? And maybe one thing that people are discussing about in the regards of like solar or, or wind is that, you know, um, they might not produce CO2, but there are other problems um, with these things where if you think about, okay, well, if you now need to produce as much solar and wind as there is currently fossil fuels on the scale, that is like way more than what people are currently imagining. And you can imagine all sort of like resource constraints with just the materials you need. You can imagine waste that happens when these uh, like physical machines just start breaking down and we need to do something with that. And also just what if we're wrong, right? Just putting all your eggs in one basket um, can be incredibly risky. Um, yeah, so let's maybe unpack here a bit as well what the Fox attitude would then be. And if we're saying that we're not going to invest everything in solar and wind, what would be some of the alternative technologies that, that you're really excited about? Categorically, you don't have that many options, actually. Uh, so we, 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 there are basically three buckets. There's um, renewables in various form, and we've just defined renewable I mean, there, that's a blurry definition, but let's just say wind, solar, geothermal, uh, you know, tidal energy, um, hydropower, um, and burning plants, um, which some would argue is not, is not renewable. But um, anyway, as I said, there are a lot of definitional issues there. But let's just say uh, something other than fossil fuels um, is one category. Um, uh, the second category, the second bucket is nuclear. Um, basically, you know, splitting uranium. And then the, uh, the third bucket is fossil fuels, but with the carbon taken out. Um, and I guess you could say the fourth is energy efficiency, as we discussed before. But you really only have four levers to pull in the energy system. 
So it's at some level, it's not that complicated. Um, you can talk about how to mix and match those. Um, our view would be that you want to be pursuing all four of those quite aggressively uh, because you don't know what which one is going to run into roadblocks. Um, and I can pick holes in each one of each one of those. Um, you know, I I advocate for the development of a nuclear power option, but I don't think it's a single solution or is necessarily better than any other solution. Um, I advocate for um, the um, scrubbing of, of CO2 out of fossil fuels and using and making electricity from natural gas, as well as making hydrogen or ammonia uh, from natural gas through scrubbing out the fossil fuels and using the hydrogen uh, that remains. But those are not perfect solutions either. And, uh, you know, I argue for renewable energy as much as we can do plausibly. Um, and, and we can pick through each of those uh, and I can give you the negatives on each of those. Um, we talked a little about energy efficiency and sort of the limits of scale. Uh, renewable, you mentioned waste, um, you know, material waste. Uh, that I'm, I'm convinced that that's somewhat of a second order issue, honestly. Um, and I can't claim to be an expert on that. I think the first order issue is, uh, is probably more to do with, with atmospheric uh, impacts and land impacts. So let's just go down the list. So uh, wind and solar are wonderful, but the spatial requirements are factor of 100, uh, maybe maybe more like 500 times higher uh, than a very power dense source like nuclear or using fossil fuels with carbon capture. And again, you'll see numbers in the literature that are all over the map, but I, I don't think anyone would doubt that that there is a, you know, at least an order of magnitude difference. This becomes real as you try to scale. And uh, if you go onto our website, you'll see some of these images. But, uh, you know, a, a good chunk of a recent study out of Princeton University looked at what would be required to, you know, do an all renewable energy system in the U.S. And, you know, it, it amounts to occupying the land area of, you know, seven or ten eastern states of the United States. Now, granted, you can you can move around wind farms and you can farm around wind turbines. But um, we're already seeing at relatively low levels uh, uh, in the United States of wind and solar, which is about, you know, something under 10% of U.S. electricity right now. We're seeing it's very hard to site additional solar uh, and wind onshore. There are big fights about offshore wind. Um, and I think land use may be, and all the transmission required to support that, those dispersed sources, that may be much more of a limiting factor than economics, although the economics are there as well. Um, so again, that's, th these are wonderful technologies, but they have their, their limits and, and, and unintended consequences, which, you know, uh, may ultimately limit their application. Nuclear, um, is, is a, is a wonderful technology. It's very power dense, uh, occupies a very small amount of space, produces a lot of energy, but, uh, there, we do not have a business model right now that can deliver, uh, nuclear at scale. Uh, as rapidly as we need. And there's a lot of innovation that's going to have to occur around that. A lot of that will be regulatory change, but it, the industry has to standardize. These things have to be made more like airplanes rather than like cathedrals that you build once in a generation uh, and then you stop because it had a cost overrun and you couldn't learn. This has to be a commoditized product. Um, and, you know, frankly, we have a lot of education to do with the public about the risks, uh, which in my opinion, are often misrepresented in the public discourse. Uh, there are risks to nuclear. It is a uh, technology that has some singular, seems to inspire singular dread um, in segments of the population. 
Um, I would argue that it, it is an industrial technology that has similar risks to other technologies that we live with, uh, whether we're talking about air travel or, uh, you know, or chemical production. But it, you know, that's not necessarily a winning argument. Um, and it is, it is a very real issue and constraint on, on nuclear expansion. And then finally, carbon capture and storage, um, removing carbon from fossil fuels. It's demonstrated it, that technology is, there's no question it can be done. Um, it does have an economic disadvantage right now against unabated fossil fuels, but then again, so does renewables. Um, so that's not necessarily a, a killer argument. Uh, you're going to have to build a very large infrastructure to, uh, to deal with that sequestering as much carbon as we need to. Let's say if we did a third, something like a third of the, um, of our power and fuels came from natural gas, uh, with carbon capture, you know, you would, you would be in the same order of magnitude of uh, infrastructure that is managing fluids and gases similar to the oil industry globally right now. So rebuilding all that piping, the CO2, doing the storage, all of that, um, that's a very significant climb. Again, none of these are fatal arguments, but they do suggest that if we really want to get to zero emissions in the space of um, you know a few decades, um, certainly before the end of the century, we would be wise to be mindful of the downsides uh, as well as the upsides of all of these technologies. And it's just really complicated. Um, and there are going to be local opposition, you know, and, and people who don't like everything. Uh, we didn't get into bioenergy. There's a roiling debate about how much land you could really dedicate to, to bio, you know, energy cropping. Um, there's a huge literature around that. And these debates, these debates will go on. And we can't predict where this is going to go. Um, social change happens quickly. You know, some people say, um, you know, people are just going to get a, have to get over their opposition to windmills and solar farms and just agriculture is going to have to figure out how to put, you know, PV on top of every crop. Um, and then there are those who would argue, well, we just have to suck it up. And yeah, if you're, you're scared of nuclear, so what? You know, climate's a bigger threat. How are these debates going to play out? I don't know. A lot of this depends on how people consider, how serious people consider the climate crisis to be. Um, what's the world going to look like 20 years from now? Uh, you know, in terms of public attitudes, I can't predict. My job is really just to not close off any options and to the contrary, cultivate options so that society can decide uh, down the road what it wants to do. Um, there is a fifth, by the way, bucket, which we haven't discussed and I, I we don't do a lot of work on, which is carbon removal. Um, that is sucking carbon out of the atmosphere through mechanical means um, in addition to you know, afforestation and so forth, you know, again, there'll be a really lively debate about that. And I'm in favor of developing the option. We may need it. Um, a lot of the climate models say we will have to go carbon negative in the second half of the century. So, you know, again, people will debate the moral uh, significance of that or acceptability of that down the road uh, and do, I would like to at least have the option in case we need it. Um, and that's kind of our guiding philosophy. Um, in fact, if there's a, a totally unsexy bumper sticker for our organization would be optionality. Now, uh, I, we'll have to get a PR consultant working on that. But but that is the essence of the thinking. Outside of these kind of uh, four, maybe five buckets you mentioned, there are also some kind of very nascent, still kind of emerging technologies out there as well. So, for example, enhanced geothermal energy would be one. Nuclear fusion would be another. Um, can you maybe give listeners maybe a quick 
recap of, of, of what these are and maybe some of the, the reasons why we could be optimistic about adding these options into and whether they're worth exploring? Sure. No. And I think this goes to the question of optionality because um, the more options we have, the better. Um, two emerging technologies that we're paying particular attention to are uh, what's called super hot rock geothermal, which is different. I'll explain is a little bit different um, from our current geothermal and then fusion energy. Um, deep hot rock geothermal involves injecting water deep into the uh, bedrock of the earth. And uh, whereas a conventional geothermal uh, energy source would be maybe a kilometer uh, into the earth in an existing pool of water that's heated by rock, um, steam harvested up through a pipe and run through a power plant, um, that's quite limited on the planet. I mean, there's a, there is a lot of it, but it's ultimately pretty limited by geography where you have access to these shallow pools. Um, super hot rock geothermal involves basically artificially creating uh, a, a geothermal effect by drilling, say, 10 to 12 kilometers into the earth where the rock is always hot, um, injecting water, uh, looping it back up to the surface through another pipe, at which point it will be extremely hot, what's called supercritical water steam um, that can run through a power plant or can be used to split water to make hydrogen. And that technology, if it can be proven, is available all over the planet. It has zero CO2 emissions. Um, it could be relatively cheap because you're really just drilling holes and injecting water. You're not having to burn anything um, and you're not having to manage. There are thing, things you have to manage in terms of the minerals that are brought up from, from the earth in the, in the process of producing that water but uh, and that steam but that's a very interesting emerging technology and uh, we're really pushing r d in it um could be a game changer um again uh might not be but um and there's some technical problems to solve with deep drilling uh and management of the of the surf undersurface uh flows um but that's that's one we're watching and and trying to actively uh, promote private and public sector activity on um, nuclear fusion is an idea that's been around for 70 or 80 years, um, really since the beginning of the understanding of, of atomic energy. Um, it's, it's different from what we have today, which is uh, fission, which is splitting atoms. Um, this is fusing atoms or fusing uh, uh, different varieties of hydrogen, basically. Um, this is how the sun produces its energy. It's a well-known reaction in nature. Um, it's been a really elusive form of energy because uh, it takes a lot of energy to create the reaction. And uh, the quest has been to create more energy than you, than you uh, put into the reaction. Um, it's been a bit of a joke um, for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, it's the, the standard joke is, you know, fusion will be ready in 30 years and that'll always be the case. And uh, we would argue that that has to do with uh, uh, the fact that it's been approached as a science project rather than as a commercial venture. And what we're beginning to see, and this has been very much spurred by the climate crisis, is a number of uh, entrepreneurs in the space are beginning to say, how do we get from these massive science projects into building a machine practically that would have produced net energy and could be reproduced or, or, or manufactured at great scale? And um, there are now, actually, there, honestly, there's more money in the planet going right now into advanced commercial fusion 
than there is in advanced vision. And so it's a very active space. The advantages of fusion over fission are that the waste products are quite different in nature. Um, they, they don't, it's not like they don't exist, but they have much shorter half-lives um, than uh, nuclear fission products. The second is that the, the there really is no um, possibility of a runaway reaction like there is with nuclear fission. So the notion of a, a, a system that gets out of control um, as happened at Chernobyl and, and uh, Three Mile Island and Fukushima uh, is not a is not a physical possibility with fusion. So, although some advanced fission re- advocates, uh, including ourselves, would would point out that the advanced fission reactors also have self limiting or self controlling features, um, but fusion by its nature is you have to be injecting energy in to make the process run. So that if the process runs into problems, you simply stop injecting the energy, and it's a self exterminating reaction. So these are very interesting. And, and, and because of that, because of the safety and waste profiles, this is something you could really would need much less by way of safety regulation. Not, not none. Uh, there are, you will irradiate certain materials, but it's a much lower level of concern. It's much more likely that, um, for example, these plants could be sited much closer to cities where the demand is and not out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by you know, acres and square miles of buffer. Um, and those are just two examples of things that they're not exactly on the radar. Um, you know, fusion is, as I said, has been around, but more as a, you know, more of a scientific discussion. Uh, but now if we can move this into the commercial space of commercial plausibility, um, you know, it could be, could be very, very exciting. And, um, there's a lot of activity in both of these areas. So again, this is something where the clean air task force moved on to these understood, you know, about five or six years ago. We started, you know, again, because of our scientifically focused staff, uh, started to take a look at that stuff more seriously and uh, started reading a lot and going out and meeting with the people who are actually working on this stuff. Uh, and we have an office in China that has connections into Chinese, uh, large Chinese companies that are interested in advanced technology. And we got them going on this. So it's a um, it's an example, I guess, of how we tend to work, which is scouting technologies seeing if there's real promise to scale and then figuring out what we could actually do to advance them. Sometimes that isn't necessarily an immediately a policy engagement. It might be just helping an or, uh, a company think through its, its commercial strategy or its technology strategy. I'd love to speak a bit about policy and, you know, regulation and legislation. Um, we had a listener question along these lines. This is from Kartik T21, who asks, what in your experience has been the research or technology that most attracts the attention of governments and politicians? Uh, Or more generally, what has been your most successful case study of research or tech-based political advocacy? So a chance there for self-aggrandizement again. And I would also add that you could maybe flip that first question and just say something about which technologies do your lights look kind of underrated or underexplored uh, in policy or government? In terms of the um, policy does matter. There's no question about it. Because look, if if we didn't care, if there was no policy here, we would just be burning fossil fuels forever without anything. I mean, the cheapest thing to do is burn coal and gas. So, you know, absent, um, absent a policy intervention, you know, there would be no trajectory. We really wouldn't have wind and solar energy today at the prices we do because there would have been no policy for the last 20 years that was designed to drive down their costs. 
and make them more commercially plausible and technically um, able to be integrated into the system. So energy is a very policy inflected field, um, uh, at least clean energy, let's just say that. I mean, regular energy, we know how to drill for oil and we can do that forever if we wanted to. But um, so policy is critical. Right now, clearly the the attention is is very much on wind and solar. People are very excited, as am I, about the drop in solar costs. Um, it's been nothing short of miraculous. Um, although it's not really a miracle, it was just a lot of policy. Um, we spent billions and billions and billions of dollars doing large scale uh, purchases of solar and wind energy. Uh, the U.S. started that, then Germany did it, then other European countries did it, and then uh, a lot of the rest of the world did. And you create enormous amount of demand. People go into production. Uh, they learn how to build everything faster, cheaper. You know, so you see a precipitous drop in prices. It's it's not rocket science. It's it's uh, just industrial engineering and industrial economics. Scale and repeat performance means lowered costs. So that's the big success story of the last two decades is um, an enormous amount of R&D plus uh, commercial or policy that that pulled those technologies into the market mandates that a minimum percentage of electricity be supplied by renewables. Enormous effect, drew a huge amount of investment into the space and attracted some really bright minds. Um, and that's, that's the result. Uh, that's sort of happening with storage right now. People are very excited about storage and... Um, uh, you know, so so that's that's great proof of concept that if you actually say we want clean energy um, and you're willing to spend what are really trivial sums in the total, uh, you know, picture. I mean, the the global energy system is an enterprise that's probably in the range of, you know, seven to eight trillion dollars a year worth of GDP. We're talking about a couple billion dollars, uh, you know, for particular technology. It's it's not really it's not really material. But we have proven in the past that RD&D or industrial policy, if you want to call it that, has has had a big effect. Obviously, um, well, now nuclear fission is beginning to come onto the radar as a focus. Um, we are seeing some, the U.S. government, for example, Congress has, has supported the development of advanced reactors. Um, carbon capture and storage, which is where we probably had our greatest success to date, uh, is becoming mainstreamed. Again, it's a technology that's been around for you know 50 years and actually used commercially in the oil industry. But uh, that is an example of something that wasn't on anyone's radar. We were the first environmental organization in the world uh, back in the mid 2000s to say, this is really something worth exploring. Let's get some serious R&D going. Let's get some demonstration going. And um, you know, interestingly, it's something that's attracted a lot of bipartisan support um, in the US. And I guess our biggest victory few years ago was a tax credit or subsidy, if you will, for early demonstrations of carbon capture from industrial and power facilities, uh, the so-called 45Q, which is the wonky term for it. It's part of the U.S. tax code that was recently uh, extended in December of um, 2020. And uh, now there was just a bill introduced yesterday, also with bipartisan sponsorship that would have increased the subsidy um, for those uh, that technology. Um, interestingly, uh, the coalition that we helped put together on that uh, ranges all the way from what I would call oil patch climate deniers to um, uh, climate hawks, um, extremely green climate hawks. You know, it, it's, it's a fascinating example of 
if you focus on technology sometimes and and put aside the ideology, you can make a lot of progress. And and uh, again, uh, you know, we we were not the only actor in that, but I, I will say that I think we were the earliest champion uh, of the idea that this might be a pretty important option to cultivate. And uh, we set about creating a coalition of, of environmentalists and industry. Uh, you know, not everyone agrees. Um, you know, we have folks within the environmental movement who think that this is uh, this technology is effectively just an enabler of continued fossil fuel use. And I understand that position. Um, again, going back to the thought experiment, if we can eliminate the carbon and if we can eliminate the land and water impacts uh, to, you know, to negligible levels, you know, I think that's a pretty good trade-off, but others would disagree and say, we simply have to use, there's, there's, there's no fossil energy that could ever have any you know beneficial role in the climate transition. Anyway, an honest disagreement among colleagues, but, but, uh, but we did, we did find broad support and on that and, you know, CATF's role in that was really to flag the, the technical and economic, uh, opportunity, um, and kind of help set the, um, policy design in place. Um, I will just note that it is the first time the U S Congress has ever enacted a effective price on carbon, um, which is an interesting precedent. Um, you had Texas Republicans voting for basically pricing carbon at $45 a ton, which is, you know, quite a leap for those guys to acknowledge that, that actually the government should be paying to reduce carbon. Uh, you know, so you, you, you make progress in steps where you can. And as you know, the climate issue is incredibly polarized. Uh, in the United States. And, and this is one way to bridge that gap. And, you know, the CATF's kind of pragmatic centrist role creates a platform for those discussions to happen. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of why we exist, I think. Yeah, I, I really love this point. And it seems to almost echo back what we were talking about right at the beginning of our conversation about how to kind of frame these messages and how to how to build these coalitions. And in some ways, similar to how 25 years ago, um, there was this perhaps political uh, you know, framing around this uh, topic of clean air as opposed to, to climate change or CO2. And now we can see a framing here around technology and uh, technological solutions as opposed to maybe partisan or politicized terms. And I think that's just a really interesting echo that that theme seems to have spanned across the 25 years uh, that, that you've been working in this field. And I'd love to unpack it some more, actually. So there does seem to be this question on the left now, now that uh, Biden is in power and the Democrats have got uh, kind of control again, about where bipartisanship should stand. And this is clearly a, a much bigger kind of existential question. But I would love to hear your kind of take on where this stands in the climate change debate, particularly, um, how it, important it is to get this cross-party support and to get, as you said, senators from, from Texas uh, on board with these messages, or if it's worth kind of taking perhaps a more... Uh, radical or kind of Green New Deal approach? So, I mean, this, I think this might be a uniquely US problem in many ways. I mean, you're seeing the fissures to some extent in the UK and Europe. I know you have your conservative factions that think that climate really isn't a problem. But in the US, it's, it is a highly polarized issue. And, and there are many books and articles that examine or attempt to examine why that's the case. Uh, it's becoming an identity signifier um, as opposed to a, pro a problem to solve. And once you get caught up in identity, social identity, like I'm a climate denier or I'm a climate activist, it's kind of all downhill from there because uh, when it becomes a core identity issue, it's very hard to change your position. And I think that's the fundamental problem we have, um, whether it's an issue of technology of choice within climate advocacy or 
across the partisan divide. Um, but look, I think we have no choice but to try and if we're going to have stable policy, and you really do need stable, consistent policy over decades. That's what the solar and wind experience shows, is that the way we were able to pull solar and wind into the market and get scale and reduce costs was by having decades of legislation that stayed in place and, and, the, and the ambition increased uh, consistently over time. And even in so-called red states like Iowa, you had uh, politicians who are willing to say, yeah, let's 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 bring this stuff into the market. And we'll pay a little extra in the sh- in the short term. Um, the worst situation to be in, and we've been in this situation in the U.S. at the federal level for a couple decades now, is to get a, a progressive administration in place like the Obama administration, and you jam a bunch of regulations through because you can't get a majority in Congress, um, and then Donald Trump gets elected and just you know. Fortunately, they were incredibly incompetent and it took them a while to figure out how to unravel stuff. So we actually were able to get to the courts in time. Um, uh, We have a lot of lawyers on staff who know how to block things. Uh, And we blocked some of his rollbacks because they got such a late start. Their early uh, moves were were just, you know, literally just professionally incompetent. Um, And so we were able to beat their some of their early stuff back. But they got a few things through that we now have to reverse. So. Ping pong is not a good analogy for uh, climate policymaking. And that's what we've been doing is, is playing ping pong, uh, where, you know, one side gets the pen for a while, does a lot of stuff, and the other side comes in and undoes it. It's, it's, it would be comical if it weren't tragic. So what we're trying to do is find policies that could cross the aisle. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's not just a Republican-Democrat issue. There are Democrats from coal-producing states fossil producing states like Pennsylvania and West Virginia, who are going to have to see some way forward within the climate um, policy construct that doesn't, you know, kill the economy of their states or the, you know, the portion of the economy that's fossil fuel based. And, you know, we can argue about whether that's really a legitimate issue given the small share of fossil in, in the economy of some states, but nonetheless, it's a political reality. So, the, our our approach, uh, and I think this is uh, this is President Biden's approach, is to uh, attempt to find common ground where possible. And it may be that um, it's not possible to find common ground right now on carbon limits as a policy. Um, it may be that all we can do is technology policy and move renewables faster, move the necessary transmission, move storage faster, move nuclear faster move um, carbon capture faster, move hydrogen faster. Uh, those, those would be big wins. I think we have, I think that the uh, energy bill of December 2020 shows that that was several billion dollars, I think seven to nine billion um, dollars uh, appropriated or authorized, I should say, not appropriated um, for, uh, for advanced technology. Um, the, big, the big push would be, that the big win would be a clean energy standard, which would require more and more of the electricity to be produced over a period of decades uh, from non-emitting sources to the point where it's 100% by 2050 in these policy designs. That's a bigger lift. Um, We are actually having good conversations across the aisle. They're very quiet. Um, I'm not going to name names, but um, there are people interested in that. And if it if the transition is structured correctly, I think there are people who would buy into that. 
it may be that we fail um, and uh, there's a need to just use the very slim majority in the U.S. Senate to jam something through. But that is definitely not the preferred option um, because, you know, what happens if you get a if the House of Representatives flips as it may well in 2022 and you know the Senate becomes less favorable to the Democratic side, that can be that legislation can be undone. Um, you know, uh, there is some history of, of legislative rollback. So, um, yeah, so I would just say that my general take on this is if we can find a way to have what's the, the wonks call po- policy stability, I think is the term of art. Um, that is some way to build a, a durable coalition. And I think it's, it's really around the economics and, and doing sensible things that are geographically um, you know, appropriate or relevant to, to, to the different, um, to the different constituencies. So that's where we're headed. I think that's what Biden wants to do. Um, but you know, it may be that, that the Republican minority, uh, is not willing to go along with that. And we're back to a Senate battle at which point I, I think the administration will, will play its, its card to, to use the slim majority to push things through. Um, there, there's some technical issues with that around parliamentary rules, but I, I, there, there are ways in which that can be done. I, I just don't think that's a good outcome. I, there are two things I think that are going in our favor on this um, over time, and we may not get the full agenda done in the next four years. But the first thing we have going in our favor is what we started talking about at the beginning of the podcast, which is shifts in social attitudes. And uh, the polling will tell you that young Republicans think climate's a problem and something shouldn't be done. Something should be done about it, and so there's there's a cultural and generational thing going on, even on the conservative side of the the ledger, and it's it's very generational. So over time, you know, you can say we don't have much time, but but Republican politicians are feeling are feeling some political heat uh, not to be in a denial position, and there's much less of that outright sort of wackadoodle denial that we saw years ago. Now they tend to talk more about the economy. Or about you know the we don't want to kill fossil fuel jobs or whatever. Very few politicians are saying climate hoax anymore, and I think that reflects what their own pollsters are telling them, which is, hey, folks, you know, people are experiencing real changes in the world, um, and you know they're not stupid. That's that's the situation as I see it, and CATF really works hard to be nonpartisan. That's I guess another distinction we have with we we don't take positions on partisan politics. Um, our action arm does not support candidates of either party. We have good relationships with Republican staff as well as, as Democratic staff. And we, we sort of jealously guard that, that stance because, you know, um, some say that, you know, there used to be a saying that the only thing in the middle of the road is dead armadillos. Uh, we take a different view that it's only in the middle where you actually get to get deals done and, um, and actually move forward. So that's, that's where we are firmly placed, and we can only hope that the Republican minority is able to put aside their other objectives um, and and see this as a win for you know for themselves. It seems maybe worth spelling out explicitly why stability is such an important factor, and I think you've you've already touched upon this, but I maybe will try to reiterate. One really important factor at the moment seems to be this trend of getting business on the side and investing in technologies. But these things, right, take a lot of time to pay off. Businesses need to plan uh, years ahead. 
um, beyond the political cycle. And R&D often takes an even longer time to pay off. It can take decades or, in the case of nuclear power plants, even 30 to 50 years for these things to become profitable. And here the idea being that if you can't be sure how this long time frame will look like, and it keeps, as you said, uh, ping-ponging across, then lots of investments that would be really good for tackling climate change and transitioning quick just won't come to be. Absolutely. Look, businesses will tell you that they're risk takers, but they hate risk. Investors hate <laughs> risk, right? I mean, the whole game is to absolutely put the risk on someone else and maximize profit. So policy certainty is absolutely what investors are looking for. And they need a price signal. They need some sense that these things are going to stick. Now, you could argue what you see oil companies doing right now um, and gas companies, which is really thinking hard about how to kind of reposition their businesses for a low carbon future is a product of some of the specific policies that are in play and that have actually been enacted. So we have several countries that have now ostensibly banned the sale of new fossil fuel cars by 2035. Uh, that market segment's gone. We can argue about how far that, how fast that's going to move around the planet, but UK, um, the EU, uh, other places, some US states have begun to move in this direction. That's an absolute signal to, if that if that's stable, um, that is a signal to every car manufacturer, every battery manufacturer, every manufacturer of infrastructure or hydrogen uh, fuel cell manufacturer, that there's a market out there. Now, if they think that's just a whim, that's going to be overturned. And, um, you know, if there, if there really is a risk that that's going to happen, uh, capital is going to be much less inclined to, to, to move in that direction. So uh, you don't, there's no, no such thing as absolute certainty, but the reality is that most legis legislation tends to be more stable than regulation because it requires coalitions and it's very hard to undo legislation. Regulations can be more easily undone. Um, so yeah, policy is the game. Um, again, I think we said earlier that in a sense, you know, you could almost argue that policy trumps economics in the energy sector. And certainly that's true in the electricity sector, which has always been very, very highly regulated. Developing a social majority and, you know, I'll just say social license, uh, which I think is the other issue we haven't really spent much time talking about. It's one thing to pass a law. It's another thing to build something. And as I said, I think with nuclear uh, with carbon capture and I think with renewables, we're already we're running up against some of the social license uh, issues, which is just literally, can you physically build stuff in real space? And that's a different set of uh, challenges, but also requires some sort of uh, stability. But in any case, policy is the game and investors are, are going to stay on the sidelines and, and until they see policy. And that's that's why you see so little investment in advanced nuclear right now. And it's why you're only beginning to see the beginnings of investment in carbon capture, because we put together a durable majority in the U.S. Congress that had very wide, I, I, don't, I can't remember them, but it was an overwhelming majority past the, the tax incentives. And, you know, that's not going to flip. If you're an investor in that technology, you're not going to reverse a, a super majority. It's, it's a, you know, 51-49 vote. Um, you might have a shot at, you know, maybe that'll get undone, but uh, sorry, uh, it's a long way of saying the broader the coalition, the, and the more, uh, acceptable or, or socialized 
the policy is, um, the more investors are going to jump on it. And, you know, they're just, I know there are many investors are trying to do the right thing, but at the end of the day, they're accountable to their shareholders and they're not going to take, get out on a limb for something uh, that's going to be pulled away in five years. To maybe like take a step back and look at this big picture, I find this whole idea of like directed technological change super interesting of not just saying that technology is something that just kind of falls out of the sky or something, but that it's something that we can actively shape. And solar energy just seems to be a super example of this, where we said, this is what we want to do. And then we get the policy incentives right. And we can actually shape what what technology we're then able to, to use. Um one thing that I'm a little bit worried about is uh, you mentioned before this kind of great man theory of history, and you mentioned how Dick Cheney was able to set back certain bits of regulation for almost a decade. And in some way, you can think that stability is really difficult to get, um, but in some ways, it might be really easy to undo, right, if um, the wrong person kind of comes along. And one thing in particular here, kind of looking across the pond uh, from the UK to the US has been kind of the effect of Trump. And I'm just curious what kind of your sense is in how damaging this might have been to, you know, attempts at getting a consensus or getting a stability here, or um, if this is something that can be fixed or even uh, improved upon such that if something like this were to happen again, that these uh, incentives stay in line. Yeah, it's a kind of a signal noise question. Um, Trump was noise. I think the signal is clear. Um, And, but it is a matter of time. And, and, Dick Cheney set us, I would say not a decade back, he set us three decades back because there was a deal to be had in 1999 and he basically spiked it. And I think the George W. Bush would have signed that deal. In fact, he campaigned on that deal, um, which was the electric power sector would start adopting some CO2 limits. Um, So I don't discount that, but the fact of the matter is that here we are two decades later and we've got a U.S. Congress with Republicans passing an effective price on carbon, at least for carbon capture, which is a start um, and not denying, you know, the climate's an issue um, or at least, you know, many, many, many Republicans not denying the climate's an issue. So, um, yeah, the, the great man problem is is a problem. I think the larger this is a really complicated topic, but the the um, what Trump represents, clearly Trump didn't care one way or the other about climate, but what he was tapping into was a larger thing that we're seeing in Western societies, which is, and for that matter, in developing countries, which is this massive populist sentiment or political movement that's distrustful of elites, um, distrustful of science, distrustful of analysis, and, you know, sees this kind of cabal of, you know, elite decision makers changing the world in ways that people are uncomfortable with. And that's, I mean, that's the bigger problem, right? And I think that the policy details didn't matter in this case. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, did the Republicans really care about climate? I mean, I, I think what they see is that their constituency, and, and there are some really interesting articles about how maybe the Democrats actually we- were the first to weaponize climate and the Republicans just responded. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting argument. Um, but once something becomes a cultural issue um, and it becomes weaponized for partisan purposes, um, it is very hard to, to get over. So um, I would say it's not so much the great man problem. It's the, it's the great idea problem of, of having a kind of a, an ideological formation. And I, I, I will criticize some of my colleagues on the left for doing this as well, um, of just kind of demonizing anyone that, you know, doesn't sort of 100% take the 
we can't use fossil fuels ever again for any period of time or for any purpose uh, or nuclear is out of the question. You know, I think that it's the it's the persistence of hedgehog ideas to go back to the, you know, the, the earlier point. If you get two hedgehogs fighting each other, it's it's not very pretty. And that's the, the bigger problem I have is have we reached such a point where we can't depolarize the climate issue? Um, that's and then the Trumps will always be there. You know, there'll always be opportunists who will come along and play an issue um, the way they want to play it. But I think it would be a mistake to confuse, you know, what Trump did to us as sort of any kind of specific policy agenda. I mean, it was just about mobilizing a very angry base of people. Anyway, I, I, I suspect some similar dynamics you know, play out in the UK. But um, as far as the damage he did, it was it was considerable. Um, we lost four years of progress on some really key regulations. You know, we're going back at it through the regulatory process. But my greater faith is in the legislative process, because, um, again, Congress just doesn't like to undo laws that it passed. Um, the, and the history is that the ratchet on environment usually only goes one way. And usually what happens, and I've lived, I'm old enough to have lived through these fights where the opposition will say, it's going to cost too much and it'll destroy the economy. And then you pass a law and guess what, you know, like the costs really come down and it's, you know, it's noise in the economy. And so that's why the one, if you can get something passed as a matter of legislation, uh, you usually have much more stability than, than, you know, where someone can undo something with a stroke of a pen. But uh, we did fight Trump. We won some battles. We lost some battles. I think we'll we'll be fully regain our ground within the next two years on the regulatory front. Um, but uh, I think the Biden administration is also being very careful to do this in a way that doesn't just promote backlash and create a, um, you know, we don't know who's going to be president in 2024. Yeah, we, we just, we don't want to overreach. And I, I think that's that's a lot of the debate you're going to see right now is like, how how hard can we push? Um, I, I am by temperament somewhat of an incrementalist more than I used to be and thinking that, you know, let's, let's grab what we can and, and get a beachhead. And that is the history of environmental regulation is that we don't do everything at once. Um, we experiment, we put in place policies, we find they don't destroy the economy. People actually like clean air and clean water. Uh, they like clean energy. Then, then we'll take the next step. I'm keen to ask about the future for the Clean Air Task Force. For instance, I know most of your work is focused on the US to date, but as I understand it, you're looking now to begin to operate in more countries. Can you say something about that and also say something about any kind of headline goals or plans that you have in mind um, for CATF in the next few decades? Most of the world's energy use and carbon emissions right now are in the developing world. You know, it's roughly equally split between the OECD and non-OECD. Um, that's going to change in the next couple of decades, and and the and the, the poorer world will overtake the U.S. in both energy use and emissions. On the energy side, that's a good thing. Um, it means that those economies are growing and people are getting more access to modern levels of of heat, um, light, and, uh, and and mobility. So that leads us to. You know, that led us to say we've got to get more serious about the global south. And so we have a pilot project um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we've hired a, a woman named Lilia Darno, who is uh, born in Ghana, um, is an energy expert who's been thinking for a couple decades and working on energy and development in the poorer world. 
and uh, we're sort of in the in the process of really talking to uh, the institutions and thinkers in the region of Sub-Saharan Africa um, about how they see the energy transition, what they see as possible energy futures. Um, it's a region that has a lot of resources, both fossil fuel resources and solar resources and hydroelectric resources, and uh, has a huge need for energy. As I mentioned earlier, the average African is consuming something like 5% of the average uh, resident of the OECD and uh, rapidly urbanizing. And how do you dovetail that huge uh, delta in, in energy demand? Uh, how, do you, how do you dovetail that with, with the need to get zero carbon? And you know, how do you develop the institutional approaches and, and so forth to, to make that happen? I think a big part of our work in the next few years will be to see if any of these ideas that we've um, developed and policies we've developed in the, the global north are at all applicable to the global south. You know, what we'd really like to see happen, um, you know, we're a very small organization, relatively speaking, I mean, about 55 people. The only way we're going to have influence on the world is by leveraging other people um, and other organizations. So we do a lot of partnerships in these regions. And so we hope to grow our partnerships, um, you know, and, and, and we go out, we would like to raise money for other people so that they can, they can do work. Um, and so a lot of the work I do personally is speaking to donors about, well, you know, we'd love to be funded and we need X, but, you know, there are other people out there that need three or five X because uh, Cleaner Task Force is based in Boston uh, and, and, uh, and Brussels. We're not going to be uh, necessarily seen as the most important voice in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, right? Um, so the question is, who can you find in Nigeria to work with who's got local political understanding and, and the connections and the, and the legitimacy um, to be working in those spaces? So that's, that's kind of where I see us going from, a, from a, a geographical perspective. Okay, and one more question on this point, which comes from a listener, Brian Tan from uh, EA Philippines. He asked about other people or organizations that you know of that are doing impactful work uh, on climate change in Asia specifically, other than CATF? I'll have to divide my answer into a couple parts. Um, with respect to general campaigning on climate change, um, I think there are a number of organizations that are, have been quite effective at just general raising general awareness. Um, so, you know, I mean, Greenpeace and their affiliates, um, very strong in Asia. Um, there are um, um, Natural Resources Defense Council, um, Environmental Defense Fund. These are U.S.-based organizations, primarily, uh, or or northern-based organizations in the case of Greenpeace, um, that have had had a pretty good, you know, I think, a really good impact on the on the debate, um, at least the the awareness debate. Uh, in terms of sort of more solutions-based approaches, um, and the kind of work we do. There aren't a whole lot of examples, um, to be honest with you. Um, it's it's an underfunded area, and if there are effective altruist philanthropists listening to this, I would urge you to you know think more about uh, investing in developing that kind of capacity um, to do the kind of work that we do. Not necessarily us, but just you know partner organizations. Um, I just wanted to single out one organization I'm extremely impressed with um, uh, in India, which is the uh, Council on Energy. Uh, environment uh, and water, um, CEEW, which is 
very, very grounded in the realities of energy systems, very, very fact-based. Um, another organization in India I'm quite impressed with is um, the Energy and Resources Institute. And a third is um, the, uh, I always get the acronym wrong, um, the um, Center for the Study of Science, Technology, and Policy, which is in Bengaluru. Um, so India is actually quite rich in think tanks um, that can go fairly deep on technical issues and, and engage with industry and government. Um, China, unfortunately, uh, we have a presence there. We don't have a formal office uh, uh, because of uh, the restrictions around foreign NGOs operating, but um, we do interact there. And unfortunately, there really isn't kind of a civil society organization there that I would say is is really engaging deeply and that's you know indigenous to, to China. And that, that's unfortunate because there really is a um, there really is a need for that kind of kind of uh, engagement. Um, yeah, so that's that's I, I realize that's it's kind of a short list. Uh, unfortunately, most of the donor support has been going to awareness raising um, rather than kind of solutions development in the global south. And you know that may be appropriate for this stage, but I think we are beginning to get to the point where. Um, more civil society engagement around solutions would be a desirable thing. Okay, fantastic. So we'll move on now just to the very last questions. And the first one, which we ask everyone, is what significant thing have you changed your mind about and why? I think the most significant thing is I thought that it was going to take the electric power and oil and gas industry another two decades to get its head wrapped around this problem. And I was preparing for a knockdown, drag out fight over regulation and carbon targets. Um, I, as I said earlier, what I've changed, what's changed my mind is just the reality that it's like a, um, a switch has been flipped. You know, we see very large, I don't know what the right per- current percentage of global fossil fuel companies that have made net zero emission commitments. It's just, it's fallen like dominoes. Uh, and then governments, I think we did an analysis recently that something like 30 or 40% of the world's CO2 emissions are produced in countries that have made varying degrees of commitment to net zero by mid-century. So what I, I think has changed um, and what has changed my mind about our strategy is we felt like we were going to be in a regulatory battle um, over weather uh, and how fast. And now we seem to be in a challenge, I would say, about how. Um, and, and that's a huge shift. And so I think that's, that's certainly changed um, a, a lot of my views on, on this. Um, I, I really thought that, this, it, that these industries were going to be intransigent and would simply opt for managed decline rather than proactive um, strategy. And, and it's, it's opened up a huge amount of opportunity space. Great answer. And then the other question we ask all our guests is what are three books, articles, films, or other bits of media that you'd recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we talked about here? There, there are tons, but let, let me see if I can narrow it down to three. Um, and then I'm, I, have a, I have a kind of shadow fourth that hovers over all of them. But um, so if, if I were going to recommend one book, people on this topic, it would be Bill Gates's recent book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And if you don't want to read that book, there's a TED talk he gave 10 years ago, um, which is called Innovating to Zero. And it's a really painless 
12 or 15 minute talk or however long Ted is that basically summarizes the thesis of the book. He may have done a more recent uh, Ted on, on the book, but you know, he, I think he got about 90% of it right. And I know there are people who think, you know, Gates, well, people have different opinions about Bill Gates, but I think he nailed this one. Right. Um, and, and I, I'd say it's the best single introduction to the complexity of the topic. So that would be nine, number one. Um, I would say number two, particularly on nuclear energy, um, which is an, you know, very controversial topic. Um, there's a very good book called a bright future written by a nuclear uh, engineer, um, and a U.S. policy expert that I think sets out the issues quite clearly about nuclear's potential for, for climate, uh, mitigation. Um, so I think that's, that's worth checking out. Um, the third is not a book, but it's an author that I follow a lot. And this is a little obscure, but there's, um, there's a, a guy named Michael Sebelist, and oddly enough, he is uh, not an energy expert as such. He is the chief investment officer for J.P. Morgan uh, in New York City, but he's taken up the energy issue and the climate issue as kind of an avocation, and he publishes an annual energy newsletter, which is uh, about oh, 10 pages, 15 pages, something like that. It's crammed with really interesting insights. I read it religiously. I circulate it the minute it comes out um, and really worth reading. Um, he usually just talks about the big trends and it's completely stone cold e economic kind of um, investor, you know, as you might expect someone who's making investments, it's just like, what's real, what's not, um, how do you avoid losing your shirt? And, and I, I find that a super useful, he's super honest about stuff. He, I'm sure he contradicts some of the, the, um, some of the, the official views of the bank on various issues, but it, they give him a lot of rope. And I, I would really recommend that. Um, the last thing I would say is um, hovering all over at least the Gates and the Sembolist, um perspective on the world is an author, a uh, guy named Václav Smil, who is an incredibly prolific author. Uh, he teaches uh, at the University of Manitoba and he publishes, he's been publishing for 20 years on energy and energy transitions. I, the reason I didn't um, recommend him as a primary source is it's pretty heavy slogging. Um, he's very dense. There's a lot of calculations in his books. I mean, they're not impenetrable, but but they are. I would say that Gates has said that Schmiel is his favorite author, um, and that that's reflected. So Gates has taken. I think there are there are short videos on YouTube yes. of conversations between the two. Yeah. So I would I would check those out, and uh, and then I would say um, you know if, if there was one book of Schmiel's, I would uh, recommend it would be Energy Transitions. I think that's the title of the book. But his thinking permeates both Sembolist and Gates's work. And uh, I, oh, gosh, I, I'm sorry, there's another one. Um, let, let, me, let me actually, if you didn't want to read about nuclear, let me put another one on this. Um, there's, a, a, there's a book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air by a former Cambridge. He uh, died a couple years ago, unfortunately, a guy named David Mackay. This is actually available on the, on the web. And it's, uh, you can also buy it in book form. So um, David Mackay, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, Bill Gates, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and Michael Sembolist's um, Annual Energy Letter, and then for extra credit, uh, Schmiel or, or <laughs> Stefan Fisk's Bright Future. How about that? And as I said, if there's one, probably if there's one single book, it would, it would be Gates. Um, it's well-written. It's very concise. Those are great recommendations, and we'll include links to all of those in our write-up, of course. 
But now the very last question is, where can people find you online and the work that the Clean Air Task Force does? Sure. So uh, www.catf.us is the mothership. And uh, I believe if you click on there, you'll, you can get through to our companion site, which is our, our European office, has a kind of separate subsite. Yeah, just drill in. There's lots of there's lots of reports, documents, information there, and links to other sources. So, and and we really do welcome engagement. Um, and we like to talk to people who are interested in this field. Um, we we actually uh, post. We have job openings, so we uh, we are trying to find good people who think hard and critically. Um, and so, some of our job announcements are, I believe, posted there now. Um, but um, yeah, so we'll encourage you to visit and. Uh, and find out. We try and uh, put a lot of information up there that for people who are curious about this topic. Um, I think the more educated you are on this topic, the better. As I said, facts really matter and, uh, and are going to make a big difference in whether we solve this problem or not. Awesome. And on that note, Armin Cohen, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, guys. That was Armin Cohen on Climate Change and the Clean Air Task Force. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Armand. There, you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like our previous interviews, such as episode 30 with Isabel Bumaker on nuclear energy, or episode 21 with Bruce Friedrich on protein alternatives. And stay tuned for more interviews on climate change coming very soon. We'd be really grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's also a link on the website to an anonymous form. Or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.